Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we lift up your name tonight. We bless you, Lord. We say we thank you, we love you, and we're so grateful that you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We thank you that we have this opportunity to uh, just share with one another week after week over the words of Torah, to study the words of life, to pour through the scriptures, uh, to seek a better understanding so that we can be better equipped as ambassadors of the kingdom, Lord, as those who bear your name and those who, those who share the good news with those around us. Lord, I pray that you'll continue to give us a heart to understand you, to, to be filled with your spirit, to have a desire to press in so that we can uh, strengthen ourselves. Lord, we need now more than ever to realize that um, the time is 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 running is is cutting short uh, it seems to be that uh, things are ramping up in the world around us so much confusion so much uh, destruction so much uh, rampant uh, uh, just uh, evil um, but Lord we, we're not the type that are worried because we we've been told in advance that certain things would precede your second coming we know that uh, certain events are going to um, get worse and worse, but that's okay uh, because that's necessary in order for you to uh, come and redeem those uh, who you've already called. Thank you, Father, for uh, including us among the righteous. Thank you for um, allowing us to uh, continue to bless one another in this fashion. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you'll strengthen us as individuals, as families, as communities. Um, we pray that you'll protect us from evil men and, of course, protect us from the adversary. Help us to put on the armor of God. Help us to wear it. Help us to take a stand for Messiah, not to be ashamed of the gospel, which is the power of salvation to all uh, to the good, uh, the good news to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. I pray that you'll be with me tonight. Help me to recall the words that I've studied. Uh, give me um, uh, uh, an ability to be clear in my uh, explanation, um, Lord. I pray that you'll also uh, give the listeners, uh, those who are uh, tuned in tonight live by Skype, uh, give them an increased capacity to understand, and also bless those who are. Uh, signed up for the Galatians study, uh, the hundreds of others, but yet aren't able to make it just because of schedule conflicts or whatever. Pray that you'll be with them where they're at um, and uh, continue to bless them. We'll be careful, Lord, to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, thanks everyone for joining me once again. As I mentioned, my name is Ariel, and this is just the kind of the logistics part.
Uh, I am a Torah teacher. Uh, what do you say? Uh, ordained, licensed, whatever. Uh, out at Congregation Kehilat Tunova, which is in Thornton, Colorado. And um, uh, we meet each week uh, uh, to study the book of Galatians via Skype. Of course, um, I actually don't reside in Colorado anymore. Uh, for the last four years, I've been living in South Korea, and that's where I'm bringing the live studies to you from. So if you have an internet connection, if you've got this uh, recording, someone gifted it to you, maybe someone sent you a link to the Galatians notes or the Galatians audio, you're listening to this mp3 on the iTunes store or something like that. Um, if you've got the time, Saturday evenings, 7 p.m. to around 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, we meet each week to study the book of Galatians live via Skype. All you need is an internet connection, smartphone, you know, tablet or laptop computer or something like that. Um, you don't even really have to have a Skype account. You just have, you can log in as a guest. But we'd love to have you join us each week and, and um, sit in on the week and the uh, hour-long study. Also, as a bonus for those of you who are able to make it to the live study, just want to let you know that there's a an after-study chat, kind of an, a midrash that happens afterwards where um, we just kind of go over some of the notes or questions or clarifications or comments or just, you know, whatever the Lord leads us to do there. And that that's for about 10 or 15, 20 minutes, whatever. So uh, join us each week. Um, one other thing real quick, if you're brand new to do this, you know, this is your first time hearing this, hearing my voice, this podcast is new to you, and you're interested in um, uh, picking up some more information, uh, head on out to my website at www.tetzetorah.com, that's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com, and on my website, you're going to find a link right along the top uh, for the Galatians commentary, and from there, you can find basically all the information that you'll need to pick up the study on the book of Galatians. Um, the audio portions are made are made available a few days after I record them, as well as the written notes are always available on the website. Uh, I encourage you to become a subscriber to the Galatians notes. And that way, you'll always receive the the uh, what we call the show notes each week that the, the topic we're going to be talking about and all of the notes. Uh, I just paste them right into the uh, newsletter, and there's also a Skype link there, so it's easy for you to um, subscribe. I'm sorry, and e- easy for you to uh, uh, join the Skype chat each week. So head on out to my website, tatesaytor.com, and click on the Galatians link, Galatians commentary link at the top, and scroll up and down the page and find all the information there. Okay. All right, without further ado, let's date stamp the recording and get started. Uh, Today is, let's see, Skype's blocking my, here we go. Um, Let's see, today is December the 9th for most of you, 2017, and this is week 82. Um, We meet for 10 weeks, and then we take a break for two weeks, and then we pick up again and start uh, um, the study again after 10 weeks. After the two-week break, so meet for ten on uh, two weeks, ten weeks on, two weeks off, ten weeks on, two weeks off. So we're we're starting a new round of ten weeks on. All right. So everyone who's with me should be able to see my screen, hopefully, and we will uh, do a little bit of liturgy. We like to read a little bit, some passages out of the Tanakh. Uh, a.k.a. the Old Testament, with a little bit of Hebrew along with that. And then we jump over to the New Testament, 
uh, aka Apostolic Scriptures, Brit Chadashah, Ladder Ketuvim, um, Gospels and Letters, or whatever you're used to calling that section that comes after what people call the Old Testament. I call it the Apostolic Scriptures myself. We'll read a little bit about out of there, and we'll also entertain some Greek from that as well. All right, so for those of you who are with me in the class, the, the liturgy for the uh, Old Testament or the Tanakh is going to be taken from a passage we've used in the past. Uh, anything that's relevant to the book of Galatians or the topic that I'm studying is what I usually select. Uh, tonight we're going to look, we're going to be talking about circumcision again tonight because of uh, the verse that we're going to be studying. And so I've turned to Genesis chapter 17. This is the passage where God introduces what we now have come to term as Abrahamic circumcision into the narrative. Abraham has gone through um, this uh God calling him out from his homeland, away from his people, uh, to a place that God is going to give him as an inheritance. Of course, that was way back in Genesis 12. And then he he um, journeys along, and on his journeyings, uh, he eventually has an encounter with the word of the Lord in Genesis chapter 15. And there's a, uh, a dramatic shift in the way... Uh, God and Moshe, I'm sorry, God and Abraham interact with one another, so much so that Moshe, the writer Moses, describes Abraham as being accredited as righteous, Genesis 15, 6, and and he believed in the Lord, speaking of Abraham, and he believed in the Lord, and it was accredited to him, or counted to him, as righteous. And this is a very uh, important, significant moment in the life of Abraham, but this takes place in, in Genesis 15, 6. And most commentators, me included, would describe this as kind of like the moment of Abraham's salvation, the moment when Moshe decided to uh, describe him in the language that we use today as a moment of salvation. So if that's the case, then that takes place in Genesis 15. And then in Genesis 16, Abraham becomes a bit concerned about this covenant promise that God gave him about that he's going to have a lot of children and that he's going to inherit this land because Abraham is still childless. He and Sarah have no children. And so um, uh, Abraham actually decides to take matters into his own hand in Genesis chapter 16. And he sleeps with Sarah's um, handmaiden, which is Abraham's legal uh, possession as well. And they produce uh, Hagar. I'm sorry. They produce um, uh, Ishmael. So he sleeps with Hagar, and they and and Hagar uh, produces Ishmael. And that's Genesis 16, where Moshe is describing this. And it's within that context that we jump into Genesis 17. Now let's read this. This is Genesis 17. We're only going to read verses 9 through. Oh, let's see. Let's stop at verse 14. So Genesis. 17 verse 9 through 14. Um, what you're looking at on my screen right now is the 1917 Jewish Publication Society version. Uh, and this will uh, give us a look at the way uh, this translation works from a Jewish perspective. Um, Genesis 9, I'm sorry, Genesis 17, starting in verse 9, reads, uh, and I'll read the English, then I'll jump over and read the Hebrew for you. Uh, English says, And God said, unto Abraham, and as for thee, thou shalt keep my covenant, thou and thy seed after thee throughout their generations. Verse 10, this is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and you, and thy seed after thee. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
verse 11. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of a covenant betwixt me and you. I like that old English word, betwixt. And verse 12. And he that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you. Every male throughout your generations, he that is born in the house or bought with money, of any foreigner that is not of thy seed. Verse 13. He that is born in thy house and he that is bought with thy money must needs be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And then verse 14, the last posic, the last verse. And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. End quote. So, interesting passage here. Um, at face value, doesn't seem to be any confusion be, uh, over what's going on. God is explaining to Abraham that he needs to receive physical circumcision as a sign of a covenant that exists between God and Abraham. Uh, before we go back and read the Hebrew, let me just check on Skype. Looks like something odd is going on here. Give me a moment. Uh, looks like we might have lost one of our listeners. No? Okay. Oh, maybe not. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, as I hope everyone can still hear me in Skype and can still see my screen. All right. Uh, so let's keep going. Uh, let's jump over and look at the Hebrew of those same passages for our liturgy, verses 9 through uh, 14. For those of you who can see me in the screen tonight in Skype, I'm starting right here with that Hebrew verse there. I don't know if you can read Hebrew or not, but it starts and it reads right to the left, backwards according to English version. The Hebrew says, Vayomer Elohim el Abraham, el Abraham va'ata et briti tishmur atav zara'acha achrecha l'doratam. Verse 10, I don't like this Hebrew font, by the way. It's a little odd for me to read, and I can't change it because this is the website's font, and, and, it, and my browser won't let me change it, so sometimes it's hard for me to pick this out, but uh, well, I'll do my best here. Starting at verse 10, Zot briti asher tishmru beini uvnechem uvein zaracha achrecha himo lachem kol zachar. Verse 11, uh, un malchem, I'm sorry, un maltem et basar arlatchem vahaya laot brit beinechem, I'm sorry, beinei uvnechem. Verse 12. Wow, this, this font is really... I made a mistake from picking this website this time. I apologize. Uh, let's keep going though, since we're almost done. Verse thirteen: Himol yimol yalid betacha umichnat kaspacha vahaita briti bivsarachem livrit olam. And the final pasuk, verse fourteen, as I'm torturing myself here: Vaarel zachar asher lo yimol et basar arlato v'niv v'nichata. Hanefesh hahi mea mea et briti hefar. All right, 
apologize for butchering that. Next time I'll pick a different website. Um, sometimes this font works, sometimes it doesn't, and uh, I'll pick a different website. Maybe we get a better font. All right, so that's the liturgy for the Apostolic Scripture section. Um, let's jump over and look at what the passage that we're going to be studying tonight out of the uh, New Testament, out of the Apostolic Scriptures. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 5, as we've been in for the last uh, few weeks now. And we are going to be looking specifically at Galatians 5.11. That's the only verse we're going to hit in our study tonight. But for our liturgy, let's catch the context. Most commentaries, most, most Bibles, break each section down into kind of paragraph chunks. And there's a section that's uh, verse 7 through 12, I think, is the section that most uh, Bibles have a, a break at. And so what we're going to do is we'll read verses 11, I'm first, verses 7 through 12. Let's go to, let's see, let's go to the ESV version. For those of you who are with me on my screen, you should be able to see this online. Um, and here we go. We're going to be reading this section right here. And then we'll jump over and read the, the Greek. Uh, the English reads, in verse, starting in verse 7 out of the English Standard Version, Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Verse 8, This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. And then the final posse, verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Ouch. All right, tough words there. Okay, let's go back and look at the uh, Greek, and I'm going to be using the... Um, uh, the version I'm fond of, I know there's many different versions of the Greek. This one I'm going to be using is the SBLGNT version of the Greek. And so for those of you who are in my class, this time I've gone back to use the um, interlinear version that shows all of the parts of speech, what we call the... the um, um, the uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank there, what this is called, morpho morphology. Um, but if you look at the... if you can follow along, starting up here in verse 7... Um, from the top, there's the Strong's number. If, if I put my mouse over it, you can see it. Strong's number that tells the, the, the number, if you were to click it and follow along with the original Greek Strong's word is. Then there's an, a transliterated English. Then there we've got the Greek script right there in the middle. And then we've got uh, some... Uh, what we call translation in red, right underneath that in English. And then beneath that, we've got the morphology with all the parts of speech, the mood, the voice, the inflection, all that stuff that you find in Greek. All right, so uh, I'll be reading the Greek here. We'll start in verse 7. Verse 7 says, Etrekete kalos tis humas en a kopsin te aletheia me peithestai. Verse 8, He pes mane uk ek tu kaluntas humas Verse 9, Mikra zume halanta furama zumoi. Verse 10, Ego pepoitha, pepoitha, eis humas in curio hati uden alo fronesete. Ho de tarason, I'm sorry, tarason, humas bastase ta crima hostis in a. Verse 11, and this is the verse we're going to be. Um, uh, highlighting tonight and looking at Ego de Adelphoi e peritomain eti keruso ti eti 
diokamai, ara katergetai toskandalan tu staru. And then the final verse, verse 12, afalan kai apakapsantai, hoi anastatuntis humas. All right, and we'll stop there with our liturgy from the Greek. And um, if we need to, we'll turn back to this later on and check out any words. Uh, in fact, before we get started, I do want to point this this uh, part out. Um, we're going to be looking at this word in verse 11, uh, this word circumcision tonight. Uh, verse 11 says, if I look at the, the the wooden version, I am moreover, brothers, if circumcision still I proclaim. We're going to look at this word circumcision, uh, paratomain. Um, Paul uses this word very frequently in his uh, letters, both Romans and Galatians, and a few times in uh, Corinthians and here and there. But the most concentrated uses are in Romans and Galatians. In fact, here in Rome, in Galatians chapter 5, uh, he's already used this about three or four times in this chapter, and we're only in verse 11. He's going to go on to use it three or four more times later on before we even get to chapter 6. And I think it's fair to say that this word has uh, a lot of importance to Paul, and rightfully so. We just got through reading through Genesis chapter 17 with Abrahamic circumcision. Now we're going to turn and discuss perhaps what does Paul mean by this word circumcision. Um, We're picking up the context, by the way. As we know, already in chapter 5, he already warned the Galatians that if they accept circumcision, Christ will be of no value. Christ will be of no effect. If I scroll up here... um, Uh, Starting in verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, tell you that if you shall become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And here, you shall become circumcised, the Greek word peritemnesta, is the same root, carries the same root as the word we just read uh, in verse 11 about being circumcised. In fact, you can hear it in the first few uh, letters, peritemne, perite, perite, those same Greek sounds, peritemnesta. Um, looking at verse 3, I testify moreover again to every man being circumcised, peritimnameno, uh, that a debtor he is to all the law to keep. Uh, so again, you can hear the same root words. If you look at the Greek numbers, you can see they're within, this, within the same cognates of 4050-something, 4058, uh, I think the root word is peritimno, which is 4056, I think, something around there. And then he uses this uh, same Greek word down in uh, verse 6. For indeed in Christ Jesus neither circumcision, uh, peritome, uh, the noun there, circumcision has any power nor uncircumcision. Uh, interestingly enough in the Greek, uncircumcision is, does not use the same Greek word, the, you know, the peri, peri, uh, peritemno word group or peritome or anything like that. It actually uses another word, acrobustia, uh, which literally means the foreskinned ones, right? Um so, uh, but the point I'm trying to make is he uses the same Greek word here, circumcision, and uh, and then he, one more time in verse uh, 12, which is uh, what we're going to look at next week. I'm sorry, not verse 12, uh, not just yet. In verse, let's see, did I lose it? Um, bear with me. Ah, it's it is verse six. I already looked at the circumcision. Uh, wait a minute. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any power. And then um, uh, verse 11, which we're going to look at tonight, uh, and then he'll use it again a little later on down in, into this uh, chapter. But we'll look at that 
in time. So for now, let's uh, park ourselves on verse 11. Moreover, brothers, if I am still preaching circumcision, if I'm still proclaiming circumcision, uh, the Greek word kiruso literally means preach. It's Paul's favorite word for preaching, so uh, I think pre preaching is probably a good translation of this Greek word kiruso. If I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? Why am I being persecuted by the Jews and by the influencers or the Judaizers? If, the, if that's the case, and I'm still preaching circumcision, Paul asks in the second clause, right? If that's the case, then the offense of the cross has been abolished, right? It's been set aside, katergetai. It's been annulled, uh, the offense of the cross, the scandalon of the cross has been nullified if, if I'm still preaching circumcision. But the real question we're going to tackle tonight is... What does it mean to preach circumcision? What exactly is Paul being accused of? Or what exactly did he used to preach? If we can gather when he says, I still. Um, what does he mean by that? All right, let's turn to my commentary and find out. We are in the commentary. We're in the thick of it. We're uh, right in the middle of page 164 of about about, 100 and, about 200 pages worth of notes. So if you're interested in accessing the, the written commentary, uh, PDF version is available on my website uh, on the, the Galatians commentary page. Uh, there's a link for it there. Uh, otherwise, the uh, HTML version, the website version, is also available, and you can navigate through each chapter that way as well. But if you are interested in printing out the PDF version, just be warned, it's, like I said, 187 pages. So... Um, it's, well, in my opinion, it's not that thick of a commentary, but as far as uh, Galatians commentaries go. All right, so let's go back to my notes. Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. I don't think this will be a long read. Uh, it's about a page and a half worth of reading, and I think I'll try to do what I've been doing in the past. I'll read through the notes uh, in one setting, and then I'll go back and hit the highlights that I think we need to look at. All right, the verse says, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Give me a second. I want to look at the Greek for a second. Ego de Adolfo e peritomain eti keruso ti eti de de Okay, he uses still twice. I didn't catch that earlier. If circumcision am I still preaching, right, eti here, why am I still being persecuted? Eti here, both times. All right, gotcha. Okay, here's what I have to say. As can be expected, prevailing Christian interpretations of this verse have Paul emphatically stating that he no longer believes circumcision to be of any value. Of course, that's not a surprise. For thus, for those of you who are in the Messianic movement, you're fond of running into differences of opinion between the traditional Christian views on the book of Galatians and Paul and your own Messianic views of the book of Galatians and Paul. I'm no different. Uh, traditional Christian commentaries, I say in my notes here... <clears throat> take Paul's words to um, naturally include the Torah as a whole when he talks about circumcision, and therefore they would opine that the apostle to be confessing his conversion from traditional Judaism to early Christianity of sorts. So when, when he says, uh, brothers, if I still preach circumcision, um, most Christian commentaries take the word circumcision there to be a metonym, a kind of a stand-in word that represents a larger concept. And in this case, circumcision is a buzz term, a, a, a technical term that represents 
all of Judaism or represents all of the Torah. It represents Torah observance, something to that effect. That's basically how um, most Christian commentaries interpret this word circumcision. So I think most of you are familiar with that, that concept in Christianity. And if that's the case, since Paul's saying, confessing that uh, you know, underneath his words, he's, he's actually confessing that he's not still preaching circumcision. That's why he puts it into a kind of a question form, if I were still preaching this. So, again, most Christian commentators take this to be Paul confessing his conversion from one religion to another, that is, from early Judaism to Christianity. And I say that they gain this support in my notes. They gain support for their view from Paul's self-confession earlier in this book at 113 in Galatians. Uh, recall that they, uh, we'll read that verse in a second, but they interpret this to mean that Judaism was Paul's former lifestyle, but that Christianity is his present lifestyle. He switched from one religion to another. And the verse reads, quote, this is Galatians 1.13, quote, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, end quote. Again, we can see how this nicely fits with the theology that teaches that he's no longer preaching circumcision, a.k.a. Torah observance for believers, and that he switched from one religion to another. We'll go back and talk about that after I get through reading this. But for now, let me keep reading the notes. We're near the bottom of page... I'm sorry, we're right in the middle of page 163. Um, but how can this view, I say, how can this view of that Paul switched religions and that he's no longer preaching circumcision, etc., how can this view be tenable that he switched religions if Paul went on to actually physically circumcise Timothy in Acts chapter 16? Yeah, that's right. Go back and read that. You know, go figure. And to to add uh, to add confusion to this supposed interpretation, um, Paul actually has this very important meeting in Acts chapter 15 with the leaders of Jerusalem. This would include James, the brother of Yeshua, as well as some of the other pillars of the Messianic community there in Jerusalem. Paul has a meeting with them. Peter's at that meeting as well. And they discuss this matter of circumcision and Torah observance and how is it that a Gentile can be brought into the family of God, uh, into Israel, into covenant membership, uh, and the, the, the topics of circumcision and, and um Torah observance are all brought into that discussion, and then they they conclude they they come to a conclusion they reach an agreement in Acts chapter fifteen, and then they draft this this letter to be sent out to the communities, <clears throat> to the Messianic communities, and then after that in Acts chapter sixteen, Paul circumcises Timothy, who would be by all reckoning a, a Greek because his father was a Greek. I'm pretty sure that would make him a Greek by first century reckoning, if I'm correct. Um, because if one of the parents was was not Jewish, if not if both parents weren't Jewish, then this made the children considered as a Greek. Uh, I, I'm I'm pretty sure. Um, I'll have to go back and look at my notes. I'm drawing a blank at the moment. But nevertheless, the point is he circumcises Timothy. He circumcises him because um, he had a Jewish mother, Greek father. So he circumcises Timothy. But what gives, right? If he's no longer preaching circumcision, Paul, then why are you even uh, circumcising Timothy in the first place? We know that Paul's a believer. We know that Peter's a believer. I'm sorry, we know that Timothy's a believer. Why even bring in circumcision at all? All right, that's my point. So what is more, if Paul was indeed confessing uh, that he no longer felt that Torah and circumcision were relevant for the life of a follower of Yeshua, like we're 
uh, like we take it from our uh, commentaries that we read today, then why does Paul go through with the sacrifice decision from James made in Acts 21, 17 through 26? Go back and read that passage as well. Um, let's just pull out verse 24 from that passage. These are James' words. Uh, James is trying to assure Paul that there's this rumor going around that people saying that you're no longer teaching that um, Jews have to keep the Torah of Moshe nor be... Um, relevant to nor be uh, observant of the customs and um, this is a, really a nasty rumor Paul what are we going to do about it I James have a suggestion James says why don't you go ahead and uh, complete your vow with these four men that have come with us and uh, this will and then here's where we pick up the verse thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you Paul but that you yourself Paul also live in observance of the law End quote. Now, isn't that interesting that Peter, I'm sorry, that uh, James has Paul undergo this vow, probably a Nazarite vow, uh, with these men to demonstrate with actions Paul's position not only on Torah, but obviously on circumcision, which is a part of Torah. So we'll go back and talk about that in a bit. I go on to say in my commentary, one view of this particular verse about Paul confessing about still preaching circumcision and still being persecuted and things like that. One view is that Paul was actually being accused of hypocritically switching back and forth to fit whatever situation he was in, in a sort of what I call situation ethics, if you will. And um, there's going to be more on this view below, but uh, when we look at Tim Haig's remarks, we'll see that um, this is a popular look view in many Christian commentaries as well, is that Paul is actually being accused by um, those in Galatia, perhaps maybe the, his detractors or the Galatians themselves, of s preaching one thing to one community and then preaching something else to a different community. All right, we'll talk about that in a bit. I go on to say in my commentary, uh, I don't really believe that Paul abandoned Judaism and circumcision, and I don't think you, the reader, do either or else you probably wouldn't have made it this far into my commentary, right? We're already down to page 162, 163 of my notes, and most people wouldn't make it this far if they don't actually have any uh, amount of investment in the, the theology that I'm, I'm putting forth here in my notes. So I think most of you who are following along with me in my Galatians notes are probably from a uh, Messianic background. Uh, it's my hope that some of you actually do come from a traditional Christian background and that these notes are helpful in challenging the traditional perspective perhaps that you've been raised with, that Paul actually abandoned Judaism, that he changed his affiliation to Christianity, that he no longer practiced Torah observance, that circumcision was no longer of any value, that his Jewish uh, ethnicity was no longer of any value, and that he was basically your, your um, good-standing Christian uh, in all uh, respects. So I go on to say instead, uh, yeah, so you know, I don't hold that view. I don't hold that he, he abandoned his Judaism. I think he, he continued to be a, a Torah respectful Jew, a Messianic Jew, a good standing Jew, um, one who practiced Torah. Although his viewpoints on, on what was most important in Judaism had shifted a bit. And we can talk about that. But for the most part, I don't think he abandoned Judaism. Instead, I go on to say, I think that Paul still upholds Torah, uh, but that he is merely conveying that he used to actually agree 
with the theology of a Jewish-only Israel. And I think that's likely from this statement in his verse. He used to tell the standard party line that was present in his day that, that all Jews and only Jews share a place in the world to come. We'll look at that in a moment. And that the Torah was a Jewish-only document. It was a Jewish-only commitment. And that all Jews and only Jews were the only ones who were able to become saved. We'll look at that in a moment as well. So, here's what I go on to say. This is kind of the meat of what I'm trying to uh, get you guys to understand. I say that to preach circumcision, this phrase, preach circumcision, instead of saying that it's a metonym for Torah observance like traditional Christianity teaches, I think it means to toe the standard party line that, quote, listen up, all Israel shares a place in the world to come, end quote. Now you're saying, well, Ariel, where, did, where have you ever read that before? I'll show you here in a moment where we read that. But um, this, I say in my notes, is one of the primary motivating maximums of Paul's day. And it's a statement or a theology that's based on Isaiah 60, verse 21, which reads, quote, Thy people also shall all, I'm sorry, thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified, according to the ASV version of the Bible. So we've got this verse out of Isaiah that talks about uh, the people of Israel all being righteous. And then from that, uh, the people of Israel, the leaders of Paul's day, had developed a theology that taught that all Israel has a place in the world to come. All right, let's let's keep reading my notes, and then I'll unpack what I mean by all of those statements later on when I go back. We're near the top of page 163 in my commentary. Um, recall that the influencers, right, these are the what Christians call the Judaizers, but I've told you in the past that I think this term Judaizer is a bit pejorative. I think it's a little bit racial, to be honest, in my opinion. It's, it's, by today's standards, it's not PA. It's not political. I'm sorry, it's not PC. It's not politically correct. I think it's offensive to Jews um, uh, to, to call a person Judaizer. Uh, besides, etymologically, the word probably applied not to the people pushing the Judaic view, but applied to the recipients of the of of you know the theology of that day. In other words, it didn't apply to, per se, the influencers themselves. It actually applied to the people who were uh, seeking to become Jews. So, uh, but that's neither here nor there for now. So I call them influencers. Some people call them Judaizers. Some people call them agitators. Some people call them. Um, oh, there's another term I can't remember off the top of my head, but the bad guys, right? The villains of the piece, the the Paul's opponents, um, the false teachers, or whatever you want to call them. Um, these guys, the influencers, like many in the many of the Judaisms of the first century, and, per, and perhaps probably a significant amount of the Judaisms, the the subsets and the, the various um, denominations that we find in the first century Jews, uh, many of them believe sincerely, albeit incorrectly, that genuine and lasting covenant membership for an individual was granted to Israel based on her ethnicity. So. Most of them, as far as I can tell from my research, most of the Judaisms of Paul's day would have agreed to this basic theology that all of Israel was included in God's gracious election based on the fact that they were Israel as a group, Am Israel, that they were a collective group. And so based on their identity as Israel, as God's elect, based on her ethnicity is what I say, um, they were basically uh, genuine and lasting covenant members. And if a person outside of the group known as Israel, that is a citizen of another nation, wished to join Israel's lot, I go on to say that person, 
according to their theology, had to undergo the man-made ceremony of the proselyte, complete with mandatory circumcision, that would be physical circumcision, for the males. Okay, we'll talk about that in a moment. I go on to say in my notes, to be sure, if Paul were still preaching a Jewish-only Israel, like his detractors were, right, like the Judaizers were, if that's what Paul were still preaching, then why would so many Jews in the book of Acts be out to kill him, right? He would be on their side. He would be preaching the message that they want to hear, that the Torah is for Jews only, that all Jews and only Jews share a place in the world to come. So why would they be out to kill him? Look at the footnote number 151. Uh, refers to Acts 23, 12, where some Jews there took an oath that said, we will neither, neither eat nor rest, eat nor drink nor rest until we have killed this man named Paul, right? Also, I say in my notes, why would Paul have gotten arrested for supposedly bringing Greeks into the temple and defiling it? Again, footnote number 152 this time points to Acts 21, 27 through 29, where we show there that, you can go back and read there, where he's accused of bringing Greeks into the temple and accused of defiling the temple with these Greeks. It is true that he brought some some Greeks into into a certain place, how far he got, whether he made it past that little short wall, that little sorig wall that, that separated the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews, or whether he brought them actually all the way up to a place where, according to halacha of that day, according to Jewish policy of that day, it would have defiled that portion of the temple because they were not Jews. We don't know. But, um, that was certainly the accusation they were leveling at him. Nevertheless, I go on to say my commentary. If if this were all the true, right, why would he still be persecuted if, if he actually agreed the Gentiles needed to undergo the ritual proselytism? Of course, we already know the answer to his question, right? He's Paul himself asks the question, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I why, uh, why am I still being persecuted? And if that's the case that I am still preaching circumcision, then the cross has lost its uh, offense, right? The cross, uh, how, do, how do we put it? If I go back and look at, um, if that's the case, then the, the offense of the cross has been abolished is what he, the verbiage he uses. So uh, I say in my notes, of course, we already know the answer to Paul's own question. The true reason, and of course, most of you know this, both Christian and Messianic uh, people who study the Bible know the answer here, that the true reason that Paul is receiving persecution from the traditional Jewish authorities is because, in point of fact, Paul does not agree, emphasis on the word not, Paul does not agree that Gentiles needed to become legally recognized Jews before being received into the community of Torah-keeping Israel. Or, from the traditional Christian perspective, um, Paul does not agree that Gentiles need to keep Torah in order to be saved. If you want to spin it, if that's the way that you read through the book of Paul, that Paul's preaching Torah observance is necessary in addition to faith in Jesus in order to become saved. In other words, in Paul's mind, um, the Judaizers of Paul's day were teaching that faith in Jesus plus Torah observance equals genuine covenant membership or salvation. And if Paul were still preaching that additional Torah observance or works in addition to faith, then of course Paul wouldn't be persecuted by the Jude- the Judaisms of his day because he would in fact be a proponent of their view. So we know that Paul isn't uh, agreeing with their view, and that's of course why he's receiving the opposition, is because he's taking a different position. All right, let's go on to consider some more um, commentaries. Uh, one of my favorite authors uh, to consult is Mark Nanos. 
his insight into first century Judaisms is 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 um, quite astounding. Uh, I highly recommend him if you're uh, serious about uh, getting into uh, uh, getting a, a, a more uh, what I call more accurate historical social per- sociological perspective into the first century Judaisms and how they interacted with the Christian subgroup known as the followers of the way. So here's what Nanos has to say, quote, and what Nanos is going to do is he's going to also, um, he's going to confirm my own suspicion about the um, ethnocentric uh, perspective, this kind of nationalistic perspective of the Judaisms of Paul's day and the requirements that those Jews were placing on the Gentiles who were wishing to be counted as righteous among the existing Jewish groups. Here's what uh, Nanos remarks. He says, quote, One of the critical questions in Christian theology uh, today is the relationship of its members to Jewish identity and behavior, an identity concern which, for the original audiences, meaning the first century group, supports the claim that they understood themselves to be participants in Judaism, albeit not Jews. Everyone following along? The original first century Christian uh, Gentiles understood that their religion was a subset, that is to say a sect, of Judaism. First century Christianity was not a separate religion yet, like it would become several centuries later, 300, 400 years later. Instead, in the first century in Paul's day, when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, and most of you know this already, so I'm happy to say this and to affirm it, uh, it's no secret that the Christianity of the first century was a subset of Jewish of Judaism, of one of the Judaisms. It was considered a Jewish religion, was not considered a new religion by Rome, nor was it considered a new religion by uh, the, uh, Israel themselves. It was, it was considered a basic, a, just a, one of the many Judaisms, you know, the, 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 the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Bethusians, the Essenes, uh, and then there's the, the followers after the way, or the Christians, right? So, um, Nanos goes on to con- uh, continue, he continues, in Paul's time, although no longer, right? In Paul's time, for Christ believers, who were not Jews, so the Gentiles, the first question was whether they could or should become members of Israel. That was their first issue that they had to contend with, right? Um, should they become members of Israel, Jews, right? Should they become Jews? Uh, members of Israel, Jews, those are kind of synonymous terms in the first century, which is accomplished by completion of the rite of proselyte conversion. So Nanos is in agreement with what my research has already found as well, that um, uh, proselyte conversion was being heavily pushed in Paul's day. Uh, Nanos remarks, for males, this includes circumcision at the conclusion of the conversion process, which, as far as I can tell from most um, research, uh, the conversion process could be as as short as uh, six months, but it could be as long as a year for initiates going through the process in the first century. Um, Nanos continues, for males, I'm sorry, circumcision thus functions in Paul's time as a metonym, just like I mentioned earlier, as a metonym for the rite of proselyte conversion. Notice this sentence right here in Nanos. Circumcision thus functions in Paul's time as a metonym for the rite of proselyte conversion. This is in contrast to the way um, traditional Christians interpret the term circumcision. They can they interpret it as a metonym, yes, but as a metonym for Torah observance, not a metonym or a stand-in word. That word metonym means a stand-in word, kind of a, 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 a loan word, right? A, a, to swap two words out. Um, 
a stand-in word for Christians interpret most Christian commentaries that I that I read, which which then influences most Christian pastors that I meet. Uh, they 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 interpret the word circumcision as a metonym for Torah observance or works of the law, uh, keeping the Torah, something like that. But I instead interpret just like Na- Mark Nanos here, uh, circumcision as a metonym for the rite of proselyte conversion. In other words, circumcision points more towards Jewish identity, either for a native-born Jew or for a proselyte, than it does towards the Torah observance itself. You guys following my line of reasoning there? All right, so, uh, Nano says circumcision thus functions in Paul's time as a metonym for the rite of proselyte conversion. It is a rite or work or deed prescribed by Torah, this is true, to become a member of Israel, which according to their theology, thereafter a person is obligated to observe Torah that is responsible to practice Jewish behavior, end quote. And I hope you weren't uh, confused by what Nanos had to say there. Uh, if you want to read more on Mark Nanos, a lot of his works are available online. If you look at my footnote number 153, uh, Mark Nanos, Paul and the Jewish Tradition, the Ideology of the Shema, is available at his website, www.marknanos, that's N-A-N-O-S, Com. And he's got some uh, very interesting notes there that I highly recommend for you to go back and look at. All right, so if you can understand basically where we're going with this is Nanos is, is affirming what I have already found in my own research uh, into Paul, which I've been studying Paul uh, pretty heavy-handed for the last, oh, probably last 17 years, fairly focused just on Paul. Um uh, I found that circumcision in Paul, uh, which which is pretty much the the which agrees with uh, the 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 rabbinic view that I that I encounter when I read through the the rabbinic writings, you know, the mission of the Talmud, the 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 uh, Tosefta, the the Midrashim, all those things. When I read through those um, rabbinic notes, which we're going to consult tonight, we're going to look at a little bit of those at that. When I read through those, it, it seems to me that um, Paul is is in agreement when he uses the term circumcision as kind of a metonym or a technical term, a sociological term. Uh, we could call it ritual circumcision. refers to Jewish identity for, for Jewish males or a proselyte conversion for Gentiles, um, something like that. All right, let's go and keep reading my notes. Uh, we don't have much farther to go here. We're almost done, and then we'll go back and, and uh, highlight the parts that I want you guys to take home with you tonight, and then we'll be done. I think we should go for another maybe 10, 15 minutes at most, and then we'll close in prayer and, and open up the room for live discussion. All right, we're near the bottom of the page here, uh, near the bottom of page 163. Um, in my estimation, these are my own notes again, in my estimation, we must, we students of the Bible, we must consistently return to this central hermeneutic principle if we wish to properly understand the book of Galatians from an historic religious perspective. That is to say, uh, most of you listening to my commentary already know that I champion the new perspective view that teaches that um, Paul kept uh, a lifelong stance of Torah obedience, but at the same time, the Judaisms of Paul's day that he had to combat were holding to a strong nationalistic view that all Israel was comprised of Jews only, and that any Gentile who wished to be counted as righteous basically had to change his ethnicity from Gentile to Jew, be recognized by the community as a legally 
stand a, a legally recognized Jew, right? A legal standing Jew with all of its ramifications. And so that was step one of two steps in order to be counted righteous. The first step was to change your ethnicity from Gentile to Jew. And then the second step in order to be counted righteous was to take on uh, Torah obedience as your lifestyle. In other words, to become uh, subjective to Torah obedience, uh, what we call the works of the law, um, Torah observance, uh, a commitment to Torah, uh, in other words, a turn away from idolatry and things like that. Uh, and this would help you not only um, continue to be counted as righteous in God's eyes, in other words, it would help you to, to steer away from sin and to steer, away, steer clear of idolatry and things like that as a proselyte, but it would also help you to quote unquote maintain your membership within the the club known as righteous Israel, something to that effect. And I and that and that in my opinion is a best a better practices way of understanding uh, the book of Galatians. All right. So as mentioned above, um, even though I think that's a very strong way of interpreting this verse, uh, there may be another way to interpret Paul saying uh, Paul saying about still preaching circumcision. Uh, where he says, if I'm still preaching circumcision, right? Uh, Tim Haig is of the opinion that, quote, Paul was being accused of being inconsistent, that he was preaching a circumcision-free gospel to the Galatians, but when among a primarily Jewish audience, he was holding the, the party line, right, the standard Jewish party line, and teaching that Gentiles needed to become proselytes in order to avoid being ostracized from his own community, end quote. That uh, uh, quote is basically from Haig's uh, notes to the book of Galatians. Uh, you can uh, purchase those at his website at uh, TorahResource.com. You can see my footnote there to number 154 from one page 188 that I lifted that quote. So um, that, that doesn't seriously uh, disagree with the way I'm understanding Paul's uh, statement about still preaching circumcision. Uh, in other words, whether it's whether it's him, him confessing that he, he used to preach it and that he still doesn't anymore, or it's him um, confessing that, uh, uh, that there's a rumor, or whether him hinting that there's a rumor that people are saying that he's being inconsistent. Uh, either way, in other words, obviously it's a rumor. We, we know that Paul was not being inconsistent. So if you're reading a, a, a commentary to the book of Galatians that teaches that Paul is being con inconsistent, in other words, that in one community it's okay to be circumcised and have Jesus, but in another community it's not okay to pursue Torah and have Jesus. If you read a commentary that, that kind of alludes to that concept that Paul is in fact being inconsistent, then in my opinion that's a weaker view of the book of Galatians and, in fact, the Paul's letters as a whole. In my opinion, Paul was not inconsistent. In fact, I take the opinion that Paul, once he understood the centrality of Yeshua for Gentiles and Jews, Paul still taught Torah observance, but he did change his preaching on the way circumcision was to be viewed as, the, in the, as a community requirement. And so we're going to keep talking about that. But near the, uh, we're near the talk of page 164. Let me just finish this part of my notes, and we'll go back and look at some things that might be of, of importance to you all here. I go on to say, I go on to conclude, the second half of the verse states, quote, in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished, end quote. So that's uh, the second clause of the verse. To what case, quote unquote, right, when he says in that case, to what case is he referring when he says in that case? 
Naturally, in my opinion, he's referring to his previous statement where he talks about if he's still preaching. Right? If he's still preaching, in other words, if the case is that he's still preaching circumcision. If he's still preaching that Jews and Gentiles are not equal before God, right? If it is true that this is the case, right? If it is true that Paul is still preaching this, in other words, if he's still preaching what he formerly believed, if he's still preaching what basically the influencers are currently teaching, if that is what Paul is still preaching, then the offense of the cross has actually been abolished. It's true. And why would, I, why would that be the case? Why would that be true? Why would that statement be true? In other words, why would a preaching, why would a, a statement that that um, Jew and Gentile are not equal before God, why would that offend the cross? Why would that run counter to the genuine gospel? Why is it important in Paul's mind, and, in, and indeed to the genuine gospel, that Jew and Gentile must be equal? Why is that important? Well, listen up, because this actually is a central um, pillar of Paul's theology. Here's what I have to say. Because Yeshua's death opened the way for both Jew and Gentile to enter into the genuine presence of God, presence of God, without the prerequisite of pedigrees and the like. What did I say last week? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level, right? Whosoever will may come, as the old hymnal says, the old Christian hymn. There's no prerequisite in God's program to be counted as genuine righteous. All one need to do is surrender to the finished work of Messiah Yeshua, and God will will uh, extend the offer of genuine salvation to that individual. One doesn't have to change his station in life, or his ethnicity, or his pedigree, or his um, gender, or any of that. That's why Paul can say, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. There's neither slave nor free. That's why Paul can say things like neither circumcision nor uncircumcision matters, right? What Paul's really trying to get everyone to understand is that God's offer of salvation through his son Yeshua extends to everyone equally. Let's read Ephesians 2, 14 through 18 because I think it's best when we have the scripture that just says it plainly for us. Quote, this is such a such a meaty passage, such, such a wonderful passage here. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18 out of the NIV reads, quote, For he, speaking of Yeshua, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier. Who's the two groups, by the way? The two groups are both Jew and Gentile in Paul's mind. The two groups in focus in, in Paul's letters, the Jewish group and the Gentile group. So, he, Yeshua, has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And how did he do it? How did Yeshua do this? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Right? It seems like on the surface that Jesus set aside the law, but I can tell you that's not what he did. Let's keep reading the passage and we'll find out what he set aside. His purpose, Yeshua's purpose, was to create in himself, in Yeshua, one new humanity out of the two. Notice the two groups of Jew and Gentile come together as one new man or one new humanity. So the two come together, thus making shalom, as it says in David Stern's version, thus making peace. And in one body, right, the 
the Jew and the Gentile are reconciled in one body. Both of them are reconciled to God through the cross. This is Paul's theology, and explains it so well to the to the uh, group at Ephesus there. So in doing so, Paul goes and say, by which Yeshua put to death the hostility between the two groups. So it's this reconciling of the two groups together by setting aside the 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 the, the bill of um, regulations that was pronouncing uh, sin and judgment against uh, the sinner. Uh, in other words, he destroyed the enmity of righteous Jew against unrighteous Gentiles, so to say. Right, The Jews were supposedly the righteous. The Gentiles were supposedly the sinners. That was, of course, in the viewpoint, in the eyes of the Jews of Paul's day. But Yeshua came along and says, nope, you're all unrighteous. You're all sinners. And therefore, you're all in need of redemption. And by the cross, you were all redeemed. All of you were filthy, and now you all can, you both, both Jew and Gentile, can be washed and redeemed. And therefore, through my redemption, through the cross, through my sacrifice, I'm speaking as if I'm Yeshua. I'm going to reconcile both sinful Jew and sinful Gentile into one body together. And I'll do this by showing that both of you were sinful, and both of you can be reconciled. And I don't have to do away with the Torah to do it. I simply have to do away with the the, the bill of of your offense, uh, in other words, your penalty, the penalty, um, what do we say, the, um, uh, uh, the, the, the guilty verdict that was being pronounced against us uh, from the Torah, because we were, all, we were both, both Jew and Gentile, we were both sinners. So Paul goes to conclude in this verse, he came, speaking of Yeshua, he came and preached peace, there's that word shalom again, he preached, uh, preached peace to you who were far off, this would be the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. This would be the Jews. When we say near and far off, we're talking kind of proximity to Jerusalem, proximity to the temple, proximity to the, the Beit HaMikdash, the house of God, the temple, etc., etc. From Paul's perspective and from the Jews in Paul's day, um, uh, being near to God and being near to, to God's Torah were all uh, kind of actualized as a person uh, lived his life in Jerusalem, specifically near the temple. So these were the people who were near, those were the Jews, and the people who were far away were the Gentiles. The verse goes on to conclude, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. We both, we both Jews and Gentiles, have access to the Father by one Spirit. So uh, I think the verse is fairly self-explanatory, but it's really nice to go back and midrash on it uh, section by section. So what a what a wonderful passage. Wow, we could just, we could park out on Ephesians all day, in my opinion. But let's continue and finish this part of my commentary, and then I'll mention some more things that are helpful for us as we do our own studies through the book of Galatians. I think that'll go a long way towards understanding uh, how the first century Jews interacted with circumcision and Torah observance and things like that. Um, uh, I go on to conclude in my commentary as we're drawing our study t- uh, tonight to a close. We'll, we'll be done here in the next five minutes. Couple the truth of this verse with what Paul teaches elsewhere. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23 out of the NIV. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Right? End quote. Yes, I say in my commentary, the cross of Christ, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It's truly offensive to both groups, 
when one considers, if you mind my opinion, it's truly offensive to both groups when one considers, now listen to my, this is just rhetoric, so don't, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. When one considers the absurd reality that God is willing to completely forgive a person on the basis of faith alone, right? I mean, man, in his own self-understanding comes along and says, there's got to be more to it. God's got to be asking more of me. There's got to be some monastic life I have to live or some, some, um, et, uh, uh, eccentric, uh, um, you know, religion that I have to perform, religious deed or, or mantras that I have to recite in order for God to be reckon- counting me as righteous. Nope. The gospel's quite simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, like it says in the book of Acts, right? Um, it, it's as simple as that in, in that sense. So, um, this is, this is absurd, to both Jews and Gentiles, it's an offense that God is willing to completely forgive a person on the basis of faith alone. Surely the world, the world says to itself, even the world today, you know, the world is the world is the world, and they haven't changed. The world today says to itself, there must be more to it than that, right? God asks more to it than that, and that's why man-made religions create all of these these hypes and hooplas and, and things that you have to jump through, all of these 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 rules that you have to ab- abide by, all of these prayers that you have to say, all of these prayer beads that you have to thumb through your fingers, all of these these um um monuments that you have to build, all of these sacrifices that you have to bring, all of these these um um rosaries that you have to say, all of these 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 uh uh, uh penance that you have to repeat and and you know how many steps you have to crawl on your knees and how many statues you have to 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 kiss the toes of and things like that you know man-made religion has all of these things these works that you have to do in order to appease the holy one the righteous one god himself but the gospel says otherwise god forgives a person on the basis of faith in yeshua so the world says to itself there must be more to it than that but we affirm, and I'll close with this, we affirm as believers that it is a wonderful truth that God does not require more than that. Omain, our sufficiency is in Yeshua alone. And I think I'll close with that. I was going to actually show some of you, and maybe I'll do this at the beginning of next week's commentary. Uh, I was going to show you, I have this um, page pulled up from the Mishnah, Sanhedrin 10, or Sanhedrin 98, depending on how you're referencing the folio. But this is a, a, a major rabbinic work, right? The Mishnah is a, the, the, the um, what we call the, um, the driving part of the Talmud itself. The Mishnah coupled with the Gemara, which is the commentary part. The Mishnah is the, is the central part, and then the Gemara is the commentary part, which is the larger part, portion of the Talmud. And the two together form the central pieces of the Talmud. And we have this very central quote from the Mishnah that perhaps we'll open with next week. All Jews share, have a share in the world to come, as it says in Isaiah 60, 21. Thy people are all, all, are all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. And so we have this statement that shows up in the Mishnah which is an early rabbinic work that, uh, although wasn't written down d- during the time of Paul, the sayings were being circulated orally during the time of Paul. And so this this theology that we encounter in the Mishnah is likely um, what Paul was hinting at when he talks about uh, circumcision referring to a Jewish-only mindset, a Jewish-only Israel, things like that. We'll talk about a little bit more, a little bit more about that in this week, as well as uh, I want to show you all a quote from a uh, prominent uh, uh, Orthodox Jewish um, 
group today known as Chabad, uh, Rabbi Schneerson's uh, group, um, the late Rabbi Schneerson, Menachem Schneerson. Chabad.org is the website of the uh, Hasidic Jews, and it's a very prominent website and a very prominent movement, Jewish movement, in the world today. And they have this commentary about this section of the Mishnah, uh, Sanhedrin, um, and they talk about um, uh, all Israel sharing a place in the world to come. You know, uh, all Israel has a place in the world to come. What does this mean? And uh, I think it's going to go a long way towards helping us to understand a little bit about not only how the first century Jews perhaps interacted with this idea of a Jewish-only Israel, right? at least the, the, those within that particular uh, mindset of Judaism, but also helping us as believers today, which is why this is important, how can we reach out to our Jewish brothers who don't yet know Yeshua? How can this understanding of first century Judaism and 21st century Judaism help us to uh, dialogue with Jews today, help us to witness to Jews today, help us to understand the unique blindness that they uh, possess as Jews uh, when we're trying to witness to them. So I think we'll look at that as, at the beginning of next week's commentary. That will be our segue. We'll start actually with this quote from the Mishnah here, talk a little bit about this Hebrew here, um, how this uh, uh, trans, how this uh, statement, this maxim, uh, plays into Paul's theology of his day and things like that. Okay? Um, but with that, we'll, it's been about an hour, a little, little longer. We'll go ahead and um, close in prayer. Those of you who are with me in the live Skype class, if you'd like to stick around, we'll entertain um, some chat for about, I think I can only stay for about uh, 10 minutes today. I'm running a little short on time. I apologize. Um, We got a little late start in Skype, but um, we'll chat for about 10 minutes if you'd like. And, of course, we don't record the chat, so those of you who are listening to this commentary, this, this podcast, this MP3 from my website, or you're, you're, you've encountered this in uh, iTunes, you're listening to this. Um, uh, by the way, those of you who would like to access the audio recordings from my website, go to the uh, Galatians uh, commentary link on my home site, and uh, from there you can scroll to the bottom of the page, and you'll see a link to the audio notes that get uploaded a few days after I edit them. Um, they show up here on my website, as well as if you have iTunes, if you just search for my name, Hanavi, or Galatians in the iTunes uh, or if you're on your iPad or something like that, you can search through your podcast app or something like that. But um, if you're listening to this commentary and you've not been av- uh, able to attend the live study, well, then you won't be able to engage in the live chat. So come on out, right? Join us each week live, chat with us. We'd love to hear your questions, your comments, your corrections, whatever. Okay, let's close in prayer. Uh, thank you, Lord, for bringing us once again to this place where we can sit and study and learn of you, soak up the Spirit to engage in a, a healthy chat. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for uh, preserving these words. We thank you for for uh, causing them to be um, uh, made a central place in our communities. For indeed, Lord, the Word of God is our lamp. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. It is that which we hide in our hearts so that we won't sin against you. It is that which uh, you have established. Your Word is established. And we thank you, Lord, that it is in in our possession and that it is our a treasure that we can take this word and we can share it with others, uh, telling both Jew and Gentile about the good news that Messiah Yeshua can and will save you. Thank you, Lord, uh, for each and every person who's uh, uh, attended the commentary tonight. I pray that you'll continue to raise them up, to protect them, and to strengthen them, and to forgive them. 
continue to uh, bring us back together once again, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y E S H U A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>